And so we will just take this first verse this morning and consider it as well as broadening, broadening our view as well to consider some of the, the general nature of the entire uh, book of James. Uh, as a side note, let me encourage you to take initiative and uh, get, uh, invite uh, Daniel to coffee or to lunch uh, that you might invest in his life and uh, that it might be a mutual investing in one another's life. And that goes for all of us as well. Uh, we want to be intentional in relationships, intentional in fostering discipleship relationships for mutual encouragement and upbuilding. So let me take that as an opportunity to encourage you to do that, not only with Daniel, but also with, with others in the church. Maybe there's someone you haven't really connected with in the church who is a, a regular attender or a member. Uh, let this be just an, an encouragement for you to take the initiative in those relationships. Well, I don't always like to start my sermons with a question, but I am, again, this morning like I did last week. Last week I began with the question, are you a child of God? And this week I want to ask another question, which is actually closely related to last week's question. And it's this, who are you? Who are you? When I ask that question, I'm I'm reminded of the who immediately, who asked, in their song about 20,000 times, who are you? I really want to know, who are you? But it gets back to this idea of identity. What is your identity? Who are you? Take a moment and consider that question. Strip away all the things of your life that are maybe uh, surface level or superficial, uh, maybe the masks that we tend to put on for other people, But the things, strip away the things that aren't really at the core of your identity, the core of who you are. If a stranger asked you this question and really wanted to get at the root of your identity, how would you describe yourself? Who are you? Well, I ask this question because I think it's a question that our text causes us to ask. It's the introduction to the book of James, the letter of James. And we're tempted to skip right over introductions like this and really get to the meat of the letter. Let's really get to the good stuff of the letter. And we'll see kind of some foreshadowing of, of that this morning. But it occurred to me as I was preparing and even choosing the texts that God could have given us the letters of the New Testament without the author's name without the recipient's name. He, he didn't need to include this introduction to the letter of James, but he, he saw fit to do so. So my question becomes then, well, why did James include this in his letter? And then why did God see fit to include it in his letter? It's here for a reason, and I think it's, even this is here for our encouragement, for our edification to challenge us. God wants us to gain something even from this introduction. Uh, this reminds us that ultimately God is the author of the Bible. And it is all connected together with God as the ultimate author. Now, each it's made up of many, many different authors who were led along by the Holy Spirit, who wrote, inspired by God to, to have exactly what is written here. And so what, what can we learn from this? What, what can be, we be nourished uh, by in this little introduction, this little greeting in James 1? 
Follow along as I read it one more time. James 1.1 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Our Father, as we consider this verse of Scripture, in the book of James, we pray that you might be pleased to work in our hearts. Many of us, all of us, are coming to this gathering with different issues going through our minds, different issues that are are pressuring us, different activities that we have going on this week, business that we need to attend to, relationships that we need to attend to. And we pray that you would minister to us by your word, that you would feed us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would inform us by your word in who you would have us to be, in who we are in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, the author, James, identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he identifies his readers as the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Your version may say the diaspora. Uh, This verse is all about identity. And it causes us to ask, who are we? Who am I? It causes us to ask, well, who is James? Well, who are these recipients? Who is James writing to? Who are his readers? And we'll get to all all that shortly. But first, I want us to consider the book as a whole. The book as a whole, the letter of James. It was the great Martin Luther, one of the reformers who said of James, therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Now, from my understanding, Martin Luther still held the book of James as a part of the canon of Scripture and authoritative, but it seems like it made him nervous. It made Martin Luther nervous as he read through this letter because he didn't see much of Christ in it. He didn't see much of the gospel in it. In it, He didn't see much of grace. He saw plenty of law, plenty of commands, but he, didn't, uh, ident- he wasn't able to identify a lot of the grace in it. Now what I think Luther failed to recognize was that James was a- addressing a different audience and different issues than Paul was in his letters. And there's clearly gospel in James, but it's subtle, and sometimes we have to work for it. We have to work a little bit to recognize this gospel of grace. But it's similar to other books of the Bible as well. Um, In some, especially books of the Old Testament, it's not always easily recognizable to see the gospel of Christ. And yet we are told, James, uh, Jesus himself tells his disciples, the law and the prophets, all of this speaks of me. And so Christ is seen throughout the scriptures, and yet It's more difficult to discern in some books than others. We have to recognize the history of redemption and recognize that revelation, God's uh, revealing himself to us in his word, is progressive. So we learn little by little more and more. And James was probably written early on in the Christian church. So I want to say that there is gospel here. There's plenty of gospel. After all, in verse 18... We read, of his own will, he brought us forth. It's the image of giving birth to us. 
He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or what about, about verse 21, which tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And then there's James' assertion in chapter 2, verse 5, that God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But perhaps the the clearest statement of grace is in chapter 4, verse 4. One pastor and professor, uh, Daniel Doriani, points to this as uh, a linchpin, a a key to the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4 and following. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this brings us yet again to the question, who are you? Are you one of the proud or are you humble who receives grace from the hand of God? The question of identity has often been discussed when it comes to to James, who is the author of this letter. And we have some difficulty here because he doesn't identify himself all that clearly. He doesn't give a lot of information about himself. But actually, the lack of details may give us some understanding of who this was. It would have to be someone well-known, well-known enough that if you just said one name, then everyone would know who he was talking about. So if I said the name LeBron, do I need to add any other name? Maybe most of you, many of you maybe know who that is, or at least have some idea, well, that's a basketball player who's really great, not quite as great as Michael Jordan, in my opinion, but is really great. So LeBron, just one name, you recognize who that is. Uh, So this would have to be someone well-known. Too little is known, I think, of James the Lesser, who is mentioned uh, just one time in reference to his mother in Mark 15.40. James the Lesser, one of the followers of Jesus. And then there's James, son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, the first to follow Jesus, who was also the first to die for Jesus, as recorded in Acts 12, 1 through 2. And so he died early on, in the Christian church, so it's unlikely to be him as well. So what are, who are some other well-known Jameses during that time period? I think we're left with James, the brother of Jesus, who Paul tells us met the risen Christ and became a pillar of the New Testament church, leader of the church in Jerusalem. So I think that James, the brother of Jesus, is our best guess at who wrote this letter. I think it's safe to say you know, early church fathers agreed with this in the main, that James, the brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter. Perhaps then what surprises us most about how he identifies himself is that he doesn't claim that he's the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That would give him some, a sense of authority as he is writing this letter a sense of prestige, a boost in credibility. 
No, but instead he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a slave of God is to listen to and obey the will of God at all costs. To be totally abandoned, living for his will rather than one's own will. So he acknowledges Jesus is Lord. This means master. And it seems even to equate him with the one true and almighty God, Yahweh, the everlasting God. He acknowledges Jesus as Lord and Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who would come and rescue God's people. And this is amazing the way James identifies himself. This is who James is. James, the brother of Jesus, turned slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're also informed about the identity of the readers. It's not much, but it does give us an indication of who's being addressed by James. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, having just been in the book of Genesis, this should ring a bell for you, right? The twelve tribes the dispersion. We read about, uh, we re- actually read about the 12 sons of Ishmael, uh, the 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Ishmael. But what we didn't quite get to was the 12 tribes of Jacob who would make up Israel, the people of God. Now, what's interesting too is that James may even be using a little play on words here as the name in the Greek is Jacob. Jacob and his 12 tribes in the dispersion who have been scattered around the region. It seems with James's language, with his use of the word, uh, the phrase 12 tribes in the dispersion, with the early dating of this book, it seems like his, he's writing primarily to Jewish believers who had been scattered around the region because of poverty or persecution. And it seems that he had specific people or churches in mind with the issues that he deals with. It seems like he's thinking of these issues, these things that are going on in these churches. He goes quickly from one topic to another. But even so, it still speaks to Gentile believers. It speaks to us today. It speaks with practical wisdom for living by faith. That's why I think it works so well in conjunction with what we had been looking with in Genesis. In Genesis, we saw Abraham was living by faith. And James shows us practically what this, work, what this looks like in relationship to our trials, in relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in relationship to the poor, um, in relationship to how we use our speech and how we speak to one another. It's wisdom for life on the ground. Uh, It's even possible that James may have some Gentile believers in mind. After all, Peter later on addresses the elect exiles of the dispersion and is clearly addressing Gentile Christians. But whoever exactly James is addressing, God, the ultimate author, clearly intended this letter to be a jolt to us, I think, to be a shock to us who have all the right theology, who know God, who know about God, who know about Christ, that we might remember our faith is not just something in our minds, but that it affects every area of our lives, practically. 
it's, our faith is something which expresses itself in practical deeds of love. So James clearly has an aim to make sure that we don't just say we believe. He wants us to truly believe, and he knows that that genuine faith will result in a life of love and service to God and others. So you've probably heard the book of James uh, called, uh, or, or maybe a title for the book of James, Faith in Action, or The Practical Wisdom of James. There's clearly a lot of practical wisdom in the book of James. Well, what I want to show you this morning from this verse, and uh, this text has to do with identity. Who are you? And here's the doctrine I want to emphasize about our identity. Christians have a new identity in Christ. We have been transformed into sojourning servants, slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been transformed into sojourning slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a new identity in Christ. And I think the identity of James and the identity of his readers gives us insight to consider our own identity in Christ. I think even as James uh, gives the, the introduction to this letter, his readers will begin to think, uh, what does that mean that James is a, is a slave of God? That means that I'm a slave of God too. It means I'm a part of the, the, the true people of God. So let's consider if you will, with me, four aspects of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. First is this. We have been transformed by the grace of God. We have been transformed by God's grace. We are changed from sinners to saints. Now, maybe you know the old Latin phrase coined by Luther, simul, and I'll I'll probably butcher it because my Latin is not, I don't don't know Latin. I'm just kind of going with what I've heard. Simul justus et peccator. That means simultaneously sinner and saint. Simultaneously sinner and Satan. Now that's a good phrase. It's who we are. We are simultaneously sinners, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are saints. That doesn't mean we are to be venerated. That means God looks upon us, and we are set apart for His glory. The sinner part hasn't changed. We've always been sinners. We've been sinners since the day we were able to choose right and wrong. We chose wrong. We've always been sinners. What has changed is that now we, by God's grace, are saints. Those who are set apart by God for His purposes and His glory. And I get this from the radical change that took place in James's life. We know that along with his other brothers, uh, the brothers of Jesus... He didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in him. John 7, 5 says, Not even his brothers believed Jesus. In some other places we see his family uh, scoffing at him uh, as the crowds are gathering around the house as he's teaching. Um, He he tells them to send him away. They think he's, he's being odd. But something happened between that time and the writing of this letter. What is it that happened to turn James from a scoffer to a saint? The resurrection of his brother happened. The death and resurrection of Christ. And it changed everything for James. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us 
uh, reminds the Corinthians and us of the gospel, and he says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And just as James was transformed by the grace of God, that's what happens to those of us who are in Christ. He transforms us. It's a part of our our identity. The things we once loved, now we hate them. The things we once strove for, now we strive against. The things we once prized are now nothing to us. And the things that once were nothing to us, we now prize. Namely, Christ and the things of Christ. Is this true of you? Is this part of your identity? That you have been transformed by the grace of God? Is religion just something that you do, that you come to church? Are the things of God just something that you know intellectually? Or have you been transformed by the grace of God? When that happens, it is truly the grace of God that a sinner can be turned into a saint. That sinners who have despised God and His commands are turned to Him and received into His family. We have brought judgment upon ourselves and deserve to receive His wrath because of our sins. We are sinners worthy of condemnation. But the grace of God is that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He endured the wrath we should have endured. He suffered the punishment that was due to sinners. And then he he rose from the dead, showing who he really was. God in human flesh, rescuing his people. And now you are called to turn from your sins and trust in him. This is what James did. And he was transformed by the grace of God. Notice the second aspect of our identity in Christ. We are slaves of God and of Jesus Christ. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James identifies himself as a slave. Uh, He identifies himself not in terms of his biological relationship to Jesus, but in terms of his spiritual relationship to Jesus. He displays the very mindset that he calls for in his readers when he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So consider, is this your default mindset? What is your default mindset? Is it one of wanting and demanding your own rights, demanding respect, or is it one of humility? Or what about your disposition toward the commands of God? Because to be a slave of God means that you make it your aim to please Him. You make it your aim in life to give honor and glory to Him. Now, this doesn't mean that this is how you get right with God. This isn't how you ultimately uh, please Him or receive a spot in heaven with your name on it. All of us, from the, the greatest to the least, have sinned and forfeited our standing with God. Christ gave His life on the cross for our forgiveness. And now, for all who come to Him in faith, God looks upon us with favor. 
So it's not to try to get ourselves back into God's good favor that we serve Him. It's because we are in God's good favor through Christ that we serve Him and want to be His servants. It's because you've been transformed by His grace that you've become His slave, willing and eager to do His will. I love seeing a well-trained dog obey its master. Um, we, just by happenstance, our family found some show about, all about dogs uh, who have been trained for different roles in the service of their masters. So the, the one that comes to mind most clearly is uh, what Isaiah calls a police dog. You know, the German shepherd who is trained to ha- obey his master. It's so important that he does exactly what his master commands for them to be safe, for them to carry out their duties. I'm also uh, reminded of a dog that was trained to care for a, a boy, I think, with Asperger's, who was prone to walk out into the streets without looking uh, for traffic. And this dog, it was so amazing. They trained this dog to obey, to do exactly what needed to be done to keep this child safe. And whenever he was walking on the road, walking on the sidewalk, this dog would be with him and, and keep him safe. It's amazing to see what dogs can do as they're trained to obey their master. But what's maybe even more amazing to me is it seems like they're so willing and eager to please, so willing and eager to serve. It's not just that they they go through the motions. You've seen a dog before as they're seeking to please their master, seeking to serve their master. They don't just obey. It's like they do it with a smile on their face. I don't know if dogs have, probably don't have joy in the exact same way that we do, but in an analogy, you can imagine they're, they're pleased when they serve, when they obey their masters. Now, we're not dogs, of course, right? But there is something we can learn from this. Dogs who have been trained to obey their masters serve not slavishly or simply out of duty. It seems to give them joy to obey. Like I said, it's almost as if you can see joy in their faces sometimes when they're serving their masters. And we are slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, but our obedience is not slavish. It's joyful obedience. For this is the love of God, John says, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. As we, as we become transformed by the grace of God, His commands are no longer a burden. They are a joy for us to obey. We're grieved when we disobey. We're grieved when we sin because we want to please Him. We want to serve and obey our Master because we trust Him and we love Him. Is this a characteristic of your service as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it joyful service or has it become burdensome? Has it become slavish obedience? And what I want you to think about is your, your service to others. Because ultimately the way God has designed our service to Him to work is by serving and loving others. So consider your service in our church. Consider your service of your spouse or those in your home. Consider your service of your neighbors. Now, if you are just serving to be seen or serving to please someone else, it will become burdensome. It will become slavish. You will never get enough pats on the back. You will never get enough recognition to make it worth it. 
it will become a burden and you will hate serving others. But if you serve at the pleasure of your master, the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be enough just to serve him. Let me exhort you in this when it comes to your service. As slaves of God, let me exhort you in this. Hold out for the better reward in your service. Hold out for the better reward. One example from Matthew 6. Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And here's the reward. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Hold out for the better reward in your service. Don't serve simply for the recognition of others, for pats on the back. Hold out for the truer and better reward of the Father who sees you in secret. This is ultimately who you are serving. We are slaves of God, joyfully serving our master. This is who we are in Christ. It's a part of our identity. We've been transformed by the grace of God, and now we are his servants. And third, we are sojourners in a foreign land. We are sojourners in a foreign land, the third aspect of our identity in Christ. This point comes from the identity of the the recipients in the letter. The 12 tribes of the dispersion. James seems to have in mind the Jewish believers in particular who were scattered around the region. But this phrase also reminds us of the fact that we too are scattered from our homeland. We are pilgrims and sojourners in a foreign land. Now, I won't belabor this point because we've talked about it a few times over the last few months as we've considered Abraham and his sojourning, uh, that he is searching for the promised land, seeking to obtain it. He never quite uh, got to that. He never quite received the promise. He only saw it from afar. But let me just ask you this question. Are you at home in the world? Does it feel like home to you? Does it feel like this is where you belong? And consider this, to be at home in the world is to be a stranger of heaven. But if heaven is our home, then we will certainly at times feel like strangers here on the earth. We are sojourners in a foreign land. We are the 12 tribes dispersed abroad with other believers throughout time and history and the world. Let me quickly move to our fourth and final aspect of our identity in Christ. We are those who yearn to live a life pleasing to God. We have been transformed by the grace of God. We are slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sojourners in a foreign land and we yearn to live a life pleasing to God. Now this point isn't actually in verse 1. I have to go to the rest of the book for this aspect of our identity. But just the very practical nature of James shows us what it means to live lives of faith pleasing to God. James gives us, really he gives us a detailed description of what it means to love God and love our neighbors. Right, The the great command and the one like it. 
to love God and love neighbors. He gives an exposition of what love looks like in reference to God and to one another. So there's, as Luther pointed out, there are a lot of commands, a lot of exhortations, a lot of imperatives for Christians to do this or that. And those commands show us what a life pleasing to God looks like. Now, during the Reformation period, Christians came up with a formulation called the three uses of the law of God. Uh, The three uses of God's law. R.C. Sproul attributes it to, to John Calvin. And he says, first, God's law is meant to act as a mirror. It's meant to be used as a mirror. So his commands are like a mirror. It shows us the holiness of God and it shows us our own sin. So like a mirror shows back all the blemishes on your face. The law of God shows us the ugliness of our sin, the depths of our sin. The first use of the law then, it shows us our sin. It breaks us over our sin. As we read God's commands to us, we are, as we read the book of James, one of the things you'll notice as you read James is that you will never be able to live up to these commands he has laid down for us. You'll, you'll, you'll think, impossible. I know how sinful I am. I, I can't even begin to measure up to what James says. And that's the law of God doing its work to drive you to Christ. The law of God is a mirror. The second use of the law is its restraining use. So the law of God restrains human sin in the world. And James fulfills this purpose as well. As he exhorts uh, believers to, uh, there's one point where he exhorts them to weep and mourn and wail uh, because of their riches and how they have mistreated the poor. This is a, a restraining use in that we are tempted to flee sin because of the threats of punishment. Fear out of disobeying. It restrains us. It doesn't cause us to do the good we ought to do, but often the law of God restrains us from being as bad as we possibly could be. There's a restraining use of the law. But what we must recognize is that uh, though the law shows us what is pleasing to God, it can actually move us to please Him. The third use of the law is, is showing us a life which is pleasing to God. It shows us how God wants us to live. The law of God is like a road map, or if you want to get more updated, it's like a GPS. It tells us which way we ought to go. It shows us what would be the right direction to go. But it has no power to get us to our destination. It can tell you which way to go, but it won't actually get you there. You still have to go about the problem. You need gas in your car. You need to push the pedal. You need to... Follow the instructions to get to your end point. And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel, what what I mean when I say the gospel, it is the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to save us from death. And it's this news which gives us the fuel to live for the glory of God. The law of God shows us which direction to go, but the gospel moves us. To live a life pleasing to him. And it's this news. This news of the gospel. Which gives us fuel. For everyday practical feet on the ground. Living for the glory of God. The law is the GPS to show us where to go. And the gospel is the fuel. 
that gets us there. So hear the gospel and be fueled in your service to God. If you are in Christ, this applies to you. You have failed to live a life pleasing to God. Christ lived the life you should have lived. You deserve the punishment and wrath of God for your sins. Christ took the punishment you deserve. You deserve to be conquered by death and never to rise again. Christ died and rose again, conquering death and hell. And now, because of Christ, you belong to him and he is pleased with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would use your word to convict us of sin, to show us our desperation, our need for Christ. Use your word, the law of your word, to drive us away from ourselves, away from just an outward moralistic religion, that we would be driven in desperation to Christ, who will save us. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and produce in us the fruit of your Spirit, that we might live for your glory, that we might serve you uh, by serving others around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.